Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Good afternoon, and thanks again for joining us at the 2021 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Zach Sherman, and I'm a first-year MBA student at MIT Sloan, and it's my pleasure to introduce our panel, Backdoor Cover, Revolutionizing Sports During COVID. Our panelists today are Erica Nardini, CEO of Barstool Sports, Scott O'Neill, CEO of Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment, and Jason Robbins, CEO and co-founder of DraftKings. Our panel will be moderated by Chad Millman, Chief Content Officer of the Action Network. The panel will run for 35 minutes, and we will leave 10 minutes at the end for questions. Please tweet your questions using hashtag backdoorcover and hashtag SSAC21 to submit questions to our panelists. Questions will then be selected by the moderator. And with that, I'll turn it over to Chad. Thanks, Zach. Uh, thanks to everybody for, for jumping in. Uh, and I want to start, good to see Jason and Erica and Scott. Erica, I will start with you, and it's going to be the same question for all three of you, and all three of you probably had to face it in different ways, given your perspectives and the businesses you run, but it's March, mid-March, late March, early April of 2020. Uh, COVID is, is, you know, we're seeing the full impact of what it has on the sports world as things continue to shut down. What did you say, Erica, in those first few days and weeks to your team to get people in the right mindset to say this is not something that, that sort of stops us from being able to move forward and, and innovate? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So it seems like a lifetime ago, to be honest with you. But you know, our big missive when we went home, Barstool was a company that essentially we sent everyone home with a microphone, a computer, and their iPhone and said, get to work. So uh, that was really our message. We moved from focusing on in-person shows, studio shows out of HQ, sports-related shows, obviously, to being much more creative. We had Kate Mannion had a show where she was guessing the number of trains that went by her apartment. Big Cat was racing. You know, he had the, the derby he was doing on a fake horse track. Dave started day trading. So we kind of did what we always do, which is to put the creative and the control of our content creators and to say, go for it. All we asked was that people were highly, highly productive and that they use the tools and technology available to us to create new programming, to find audience for it, and you know, for, our, for us to be able to monetize that. So we didn't really skip a beat. It was quite seamless. You know, I think the last thing I would say is what's unique about Barstool is we're so open from a creative perspective and people are used to creating low fidelity content that the idea of moving from an office to your apartment wasn't that big of a jump. Um, and what we saw, frankly, was a, the creation of a lot of new avenues of content for us, which has been a, a really big highlight coming out of 2020. So I'm going to want to, I do want to follow with one thing before I go to Scott uh, to answer next, which is, did you specifically have to message? Did you or Dave have to say to the team, all right, we got a rally. This is how we're going to stay focused. Or did it sort of just feel like, hey, this is the the mandate and there was no next level of inspirational message that needed to be had? 
No, I mean, I don't, I don't know how inspirational Dave and I are inside the company, but, um, you know, I felt like I had to do my part. I emailed every single person. We have 253 employees. I emailed every person every week for that first three weeks we were home because we were used to being so connected and together. This was a company that things didn't get done if they weren't done in person. So I really felt like the best thing I could do was to communicate. We put our content people to empowering people to make content. We started piloting, you know, TikToks. We started piloting technology like StreamYard, which helps us do better, you know, more highly produced live streams. So, uh, and then the best thing of it that I think Dave and I and Dan Katz and others have done, Kevin Clancy, is to just lead by example. So we put our biggest you know, feet forward. And, you know, I started a podcast. I was like, if I can start a podcast from home and I'm not a content creator, you can do your podcast from home too. So that's how we did it. Uh, Jason, I want to get to you last because you had something that was entirely unique and different that you were starting uh, during, uh, during the pandemic when it first began. Scott, you've got the Sixers, you've got the Devils, you've got sports shutting down. What are the first things you do to manage in a situation like that? Well, it's funny. I, I was speaking at the MIT conference and then came, flew home to a game, which ended up being our last game. So um, while we were at the game, the news came about the Jazz, and um, and we were getting we were getting the, the classic Woj tweets, and then we were getting texts from our friends at the league office saying this is it, and so. Um, I just, the first thing I did was walk into our coach, our former coach, Brett Brown's office and say, Hey, at your press event, this is going to be an adventure. Here's what's coming. Let's talk about it. So it was uh, me, Elton Brand, Chris Heck, our president and Brett Brown talking about what Brett was going to do and say, and Elton ended up joining him out there. So that was the first thing. <clears throat> Fortunately, I had been to China a couple of times in the last, in the few months before that. So I, I, I don't, I don't want to say I had a crystal ball, but I don't know. I was just a little more connected. We had had meetings for the last month. Once a week, we had a, a kind of tiger team prepared, um, figuring out what working remotely might look like. So very different from Erica's business um, where she said you could handle a microphone and a, and a computer. I was terrified. I'm like, this, this is not going to work, you know? And um, so that was the first thing. Uh, so we had a plan in place already and put it, put it into action pretty quickly. The interesting part, at least for me at that time is we thought it was going to be two weeks or three weeks, uh, not 12 or 18 months. Um, so our plan was, was a, a hair short-sighted. Um, generally, um, I set up a, a morning meeting, um, 8 a.m. morning meeting for my directs. They did not love the, the time. So that switched uh, relatively quickly to nine. Um, but that, that kind of kept us connected, uh, which was good. So I, I think we had structure and process. And then you do what, what any CEO would do is like, I'm looking at liquidity, financial projections, making sure uh, were go and, and communicating with the league. It really quickly thereafter, though, moved to more, much more mind, body, soul stuff, um, which is like something, do something for your mind, something for your body, something for your soul every day. Um, because there were some, you know, I, I, you know, the average age of my employees is probably 26, maybe 27. So it's a really, really young group. Um, you know, they're going back to their studio apartments um, in somewhere in, in New Jersey or somewhere in Philadelphia. And, um, and there was a whole host of mental health challenges that we were tackling in real time. And so we, we kind of shot into action to make sure that we had a really, really strong pipeline of communication, that we were articulating our vision regularly, 
that there was structure in place and particularly with the young staff you need to provide like what am I doing every day and what does it actually look like and how do I get feedback and what does success look like and and so so it was a I think from a from a management challenge really much more hands-on than I'm accustomed to and from a leadership challenge uh, that was a little bit more intuitive we have a really strong strong management team that was for the, the core teams um, for the real estate group and for the esports group we're like hey and it and the, um, the ventures team, it's like, let's go have some fun. Because we knew there was going to be a tremendous amount of opportunity, which is what we found. So um, speaking of opportunity, Jason, DraftKings decides to go public in April of last year when there's no sports. And at the anchor, your, the, the foundation of your business is sports betting. Can you walk us through the decision-making process? Well, we didn't, you know, we didn't decide... Uh to do it at that point we had decided you know early uh earlier you know all the planning went into doing the deal and that was back in q4 of 2019 so um actually remember about a week or so before uh everything shut down scott uh scott mentioned i, I think i saw you there scott we were at the yeah. analytics conference doing panels and so everybody kind of knew something was going on people weren't shaking hands we were all you know being careful not to touch our face but you know, really, it, it, things were still happening. I actually, as on a panel with Alexis Ohanian, and we talked about it, I was going to an investor conference the following week in Florida, and we were going to get dinner together. And then five days later, everything got shut down. So it came pretty quickly. I think, you know, NBA, uh, Scott, you know, one of Scott's leagues started, and then, you know, everybody kind of went within a matter of 24 hours. So uh, we had actually done a dry run beforehand about a week earlier because we thought there was a chance things could get shut down. We saw it happening in Europe and other parts of the world. So we did a full work from home day. Um, so we actually were quite confident that we we're from a productivity and you know everything working standpoint to be able to adjust to that. And um, that was actually the easy part. I think the harder parts, um, one, as Scott mentioned, was just everybody's freaking out. And you know people are suddenly in a new environment, but also wondering what's going on around them world and being able to you know provide support for employees making sure everybody felt safe and healthy making sure that um you know everybody felt like their families were taken care of those were th those were the things we focused on first um and then you know after we got through the first week or so and we felt like things were stable there um you know focused on how do we you know how do we innovate how do we keep things moving and of course you know how do we close our deal to to take the company public we ended up having to push it back a little bit, um, but you know, thankfully the markets recovered way faster than anyone thought. It was quite remarkable. I don't think I've ever seen such a short-lived downturn, uh, although uh, you know, lots of dynamics I know behind that. But um, you know, things started to turn around from the market perspective pretty quickly, and it was this weird um, you know juxtaposition of uh, the market suddenly started ripping, but um, you know, everything in the world felt like it was crumbling all, all around us. It was very strange kind of combination of the two, but. We said, look, we don't know how long this will last. Okay, you know, we're, we're going to close our deal and, and move forward. So um, that's what we did. And, uh, you know, I think really that was a great um, rallying point for the team. Everyone was very proud and excited. Um, you know, they were uh, really viewing it as the culmination for those who've been here for a while, many, many years of work. Um, and I think it actually beyond just, you know, doing the kind of practical things like capitalizing the business and things like that. It also was just in a moment in time that everyone, you know, felt excited and maybe a little bit distracted in a good way from all the crazy things going on around them. So um, I think it ended up being, uh, as strange as it sounds, a very well-timed moment for us. And, um, 
you know, we had anticipated a lot of things in our process and our planning. Um, companies certainly been through its share of ups and downs. So um, we we thought, you know, we had everything covered and then, you know, boom, once in a century pandemic. So we all for a few weeks were looking at each other saying, you can't make this up. Uh, you know, it's, it's another strange curveball thrown our way on this journey. But thankfully, um, you know, it ended up working out from, from uh, a company standpoint. And uh, also, thankfully, uh, our employees, you know, there's still been a lot of challenges with people working from home, but everyone's been, you know, safe, healthy, things have been productive. So we feel very fortunate. Jason, I don't want want to pull rank on you, but uh, since I'm a shareholder, I think I'm technically your boss. So I just wanted to say you're doing a wonderful job. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks, boss. No problem. Um, Anytime. You know, you mentioned uh, that the markets came back and just started ripping and, and a lot of the stories in sort of the middle of last year before sports were coming back were centered around sports betting being an anchor for a lot of recovery for sports. Uh, And Erica, you saw this also with Penn, which sort of dipped and then, you know, has been on an equally torrid pace as as DraftKings. Why do you guys, starting with you and then Scott, I have a variation on this question for you, but Jason, you first, why do you think the investment community was so receptive to sports betting um, when all of sports were shutting down? Well, There are two things I think going on. One, investors are always looking for areas of big growth and, you know, they're harder and harder to find. Uh, And this is one that I think everybody felt, you know, obviously there's things that need to happen in terms of state legalization, but the path is clear uh, and the trends seem clear and the growth, if if those trends uh, follow, will be strong across the industry, not just in what Erica and I do, but, you know, what you do too, Chad. Um, there's a lot of parts of the ecosystem that, that are going to benefit, uh, you know, sports betting continues to be a high growth market. The second thing, and this is, um, you know, a very strange phenomenon I thought that happened, you know, the markets, of course, are notoriously short-sighted. What are your next quarter earnings going to be? You know, what's the news of today? Generally, that's what moves stocks. And what happened, I think, when all, all, all the, um, you know, pandemic stuff and shutdowns started, all of a sudden, everyone had to throw short term out the window. They couldn't make any sense of it. You know, nobody knew how to make sense of next quarter's earnings. They didn't mean anything in terms of the long term. You know, the company, there were no indication. Um, news headlines were, yeah, sh- sports are shut down. But what does that mean in terms of long term? Everybody knows sports will be back at some point. So um, for the first time in, in my memory, the market actually thought a little longer term. And they started to have a discussion on, OK, well, you know, let's put aside what the next quarter or two looks like. What types of industries, what types of companies are going to to be in a good spot on the other side of this thing when um, we start to get back to some sense of normalcy, beginning with, in our case, you know, what what happens when sports return. And I think the dialogue started to become, well, you know, there's going to be a lot of pent-up demand from sport for sports. People are home. They're not spending on other entertainment categories like travel and leisure. Um, so they may have a few extra dollars in their pocket. They're bored. Um, you know, they're going to be looking for things to do online because going out and doing things is not going to be uh, commonplace. So, all of that was positive. The other thing that was positive was, you know, people were talking about. And I shouldn't say it's positive, but in terms of catalyst for our industry, um, you know, the the thought that perhaps you would see some acceleration in legislation because states would be even more in need of of budget uh, gaps being filled by new revenue sources coming in. 
um, and that could potentially accelerate the pace of legislation for sports betting. That started to become a lot of the chatter too back at that time. And so I think, you know, between the markets kind of thinking like, okay, we're going to throw out next quarter. So it doesn't really matter whether sports are on now or not. And then really shifting towards well, what are some of the trends um, the, the talk started to become like, you know, what, what are the COVID impacted trends going to be? What is this pandemic going to cause on the business side? And I think a lot of the narrative, which is very positive for what Erica and I do. Well, so exactly, Erica, like for Barstool, it had just closed its deal with Penn that January, I think, and maybe early February. And then the pandemic hits and you guys are transitioning into being part of an operator uh, and thinking more about what a Barstool Sportsbook experience is like. And then what, how, how are you guys planning for that? How are you thinking about what that business looks like and for a return to sports? Um, and also seeing sort of the impact it can have on the overall company's uh, position in the market. Yeah, I mean, what was exciting about the Penn investment in Barstool Sports is that for the first time, stoolies and our fans could buy a piece of barstool like they could be they could be personally invested in our future and i think you've seen the impact that we've had on that stock and, and it's awesome we're super proud of it we're very excited about it uh we love our partnership with Penn. you know we were in a little bit i thought jason talked about the macro trends very well like we were in a little bit of a different place whereby our sportsbook app was not live like our product wasn't wasn't live. So we had, to be honest with you, it was fortuitous for us because then we had essentially six months to build a product. Uh, we were going to miss that market anyways. We were going to miss the end of the, the NBA season. We were going to miss the NHL season. We would have missed the MLB, you know, the majority of regular MLB seasons. So for us, you know, it, it actually worked out anyways, because we would have spent that time with Penn. It was actually a luxury in some ways, whereby we could be far more involved in the development of the sports betting product. I think what's interesting in our case is we're building a very, very large media company. Over the pandemic, we created an extremely large footprint covering the public markets, being influential in the public market becoming an, an influencer and, and a go-to voice as it relates to retail investors. And, you know, I think Dave does that better than anybody. Um, and then by the time the fall rolled around, we were ready to not only roll out the product, but also, you know, think about the integration of the Barstool brand and our personalities into Penn's regional footprint. Um, and now we were, you know, we had the added benefit of all of the types of content that we had invested in and had focused on growing during the pandemic, which to be honest with you, if sports were live, we would not have done. DDTG wouldn't have existed necessarily the way it exists now if, you, if we had had March Madness last spring. Um, so, you know, for us, we're pretty opportunistic and what we're focused on is becoming a formidable competitor and a good competitor, doing the marketing in a way that's unique and, and true to Barstool and then continuing to grow our footprint and, you know, the value and influence we can create in as many verticals as possible. Some will relate to sports betting and sports and like always, some will have nothing to do with either. Well, you make a great point, and it's something that that at Action we've talked about a lot. And I know, you know, friends at other companies have had the same conversation where 
the shutdown uh, allowed people to catch up a little bit. And a lot of the long-term things and a lot of the projects that they always know they want to get to, they're going to be great for the business that they can't ever get to because they're, you know, on a hamster wheel to function day to day. They finally were able to get to. So Scott, in your spot where sports betting was increasingly more relevant in both New Jersey and, and Pennsylvania, where you've got franchises, how were sports betting a part of your business before? And then how did the shutdown make you reimagine or get uh, opportunities to, to work more closely with new partners for when sports came back? Sure. So remember, um, in our business, the house was on fire. So, uh, so generally, you know, I was looking for the, into the past. I always feel that history is a great teacher. And so the, the two memories I have in terms of discovery is, is one, this great picture from Major League Baseball in 1919 of a guy, a big baseball player up at bat with a mask on, which I, I love. And I saw another photo. I sit on the Governor Murphy's um, committee to bring the, bring the world back in New Jersey. And somebody showed a photo of, of Elvis getting his polio shot in the back of the Ed Sullivan Theater after you've done the show. And then I started reading about the Roaring Twenties, and, and I think it's not too much a coincidence. So, so generally, at least my thesis is, is that we're going to have the Roaring Twenties. And so w- once we got there emotionally, um, <clears throat> and we probably got there after three months of just trying to grind through, uh, we, you know, we, we held on to our team. So a lot of my colleagues um, jettisoned their team. And the only thing I said was like, we just have to keep the machine intact. That's all I kept saying, just keep the machine. Like we have the incredible sales and marketing team. And I just didn't want to lose the machine and have to rehire. That, that's all I kept thinking about. It's like, I can't even imagine how many years this will set us back if I lose this core, you know? So we held on to the core um, and, uh, and we didn't have like time for long-term projects, at least in the core business. I mean, that we didn't have that luxury because while we didn't knock anybody out, anybody that left, we didn't replace. We just kind of battened down the hatches. Um, but and so, so that was like, our mindset was, okay, let's prepare for the party because it's coming. And I, I believe that with every bone in my body. Um, I think we're going to have the most exciting decade we've had in a really long time. I think that you're going to see fans running to arenas for both concerts and sporting events. Um, and I think it's going to be quite fun. Um, so, so on that basis, like uh, the way we think about sports betting in the, in the past was just like, hey, I mean, we're, we're restricted in terms of the leagues we operate in. So, so generally it's a sponsorship play. You know, and, and we, we get creative and we're fun and, and we do, do kind of, we, we have, we have DraftKings is an incredible partner of ours for a really long time since I think 2016. So we've been with them for a long time. They're incredible partners and we have a lot of fun together. You know, what we are, are spending a lot of our time and have over this last uh, year doing is making sure that uh, we work with Kager, Jess Gellman, who invited me here. Um, and so our data warehouse and our ability to, um, impact and influence Jason's business is really important to us. And that's a skill set that we are spending a lot of time figuring out. So that's one piece. It's just, and I know it's not exciting to talk about, but data, data, data. And the same thing with both Eric and Jason, like they'll know more about my fans than I do. And I want to know more about my fans. And so in terms of how we exchange information and how we get to know our fans at a more basic level, I think we can help each other's business in the long term quite a bit. So we make great strides there. In terms of the in arena experience, like I think we can do better. Like as a, as an industry, I think we can do better because I'm just, because we're all, I mean, I know the retail outlets get a lot of attention and it's, it's great. It's cute, you know, whatever. 
but I, I don't know what the stats are. And these guys will know a lot better than I will, but I'm guessing that some high percentage, call it 90% of betting on sports will be done mobily. And so like we have these incredible venues. So if you're looking for a casino, quote, quote unquote, in New Jersey, it's the Prudential Center. Like it's sitting in the middle of 4.5 million people. We have more millionaires per capita than any, any state in the country. We have the highest like average income at 100,000. Like if it's the NBA finals, if it's final four, we have the biggest um, center home scoreboard in the world. Okay. So like, why aren't we creating that experience? Like why not our, our place? Like, why can't we, why can't Jason's team come and partner with us and, and they could help with, signups and ease of use and maybe we have some kind of progressive odds for people in attendance and we do something something fun together but i think that i mean that's what we're starting to get our arms around how we can play with that and how we can think about it and how we can partner on it but i i just think there's an unlimited opportunity to use these arenas i mean we're only booking 150 200 nights a year and we're, we're top 10 booked venue in the country and so think of all the opportunities what about after our games like why does the party have to go home so I think that's what anyway that's where we're starting to plan and that's where we're starting to think. I think there's some new opportunity there. Uh, I love the optimism and I love the idea that it's uh, the incredibly roaring good times are to come. And it, and all three of you did things unconventionally when the business world and the sports world was shutting down. And to take it off the data path for one second, and, and Eric, I pushed you a little bit on sort of the inspirational stuff, but forget about that. You know, Scott, you mentioned mind, body, and soul. Like, how much does just optimism generally play a part in how you're communicating with your teams? And Jace, you go first, like how you're trying to let them know that on the other side of this, there is probably something good. Um. You know, we definitely push some of that message. We've always tried to keep everything steady uh, more than anything else. Um, the Roaring Twenties were great, but they were followed by the Great Depression. So there's always ups and downs. Uh, and Scott, we actually started partnering together in 2015. You, you, you snuck a year off. And the reason I, that was a historically bad year for the Sixers when we first yes, partnered. Was. And we, now we look won 10 games, but we were like on the rise. You were on the rise and now look at you. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, I mean, you know, it goes up and down. And I remember, you know, you talking about that then about how, you know, you had a good young core and you were building for the future and the brightest days were ahead. Um, things are up and down. So we've always tried to, and, and we've certainly had our share of that. We've always tried to kind of say, look, the, the best teams, the best companies, they don't get too high. They don't get too low. Yes, it's important to know that there's something good on the other side of something bad. And we did talk about that, but we also said, um, we've been through a lot together and we've beaten it when we've had a tough experience, tough challenges, we've beaten those challenges. And we've also resisted when things are going really well, getting complacent and feeling like we've won something already. And um, always you know, reminded everybody that that's the, the worst time to rest on your laurels. That's when everybody's coming after you and you got to be extra sharp during those periods. So I think we just tried to kind of convey the same message. It was coupled with, you know, a real concern for health and safety of people. And, um, you know, also wanted to assure people their jobs were safe and things like that. Um, so, you know, taking kind of those more threshold issues off the table 
health, safety, job security, we said, look, you know, there'll be good times and bad. This is obviously a unique challenge, but we've seen many unique challenges throughout our history. And the reason we've been successful is we have a team that's able to figure out how to, how to navigate anything. Uh, and so that's kind of been the message that we've always tried to push. And um, I think it's built a very resilient culture. Chad, do you mind if I jump in there? I would love it. Um, for the young people who are listening, I know a lot of young people go to this conference. So there's a book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And if you haven't read it, it's a quick read, but it's pretty powerful. It takes place in a, uh, in a concentration camp. And his observation is that the people who had kind of blind hope, like, we're going to be home by Christmas. We're going to be home by Easter. We're going to be home by summer. Those people never made it. Um, he said that some sort of realistic optimism was the best, was, was a really um, optimal strategy. And he said, but the people who really thrived were those who helped others. So even in the toughest time, if they, they would share the, the meager amount of bread they got for lunch, they would share it. He said, those people, they all made it, they all thrived. And I, th I think it's, a, it was a, that's, it's, it's instructed in several ways to think about, um, but most importantly, I think the help part and the service part because I will tell you, like, I had some really, really dark days during this time. And I think if we're all honest with each other, we each had them. And, and the reality is, is that this, you know, our, our business, it's run like a family. And so I'm sure y'all, your businesses are too. And we were, we spent so much time with each other that if I was going off the reservation, I had Jake Reynolds or Hugh Weber or Laura Price or Don Daniels call me and say, hey, you okay? Can I help you with something? And I did the same for them. And, and I um, was hoping that that's what was trickling through the organization. Um, I, I think that, I truly think that the mental health implications of this pandemic, we've barely scratched the surface on. And, um, and I, I think that, you know, the analogy of helping each other, and that, that goes to my friends who are running companies, that goes to the people I work with, that goes to family, friends, neighbors. Um, and we saw so many incredible acts of just love, kindness, and service. And I think that's like, th those were the moments that I'll remember. And those are the moments that lifted me up when I was not feeling so great. I mean, Scott, how can I follow up a book from the Holocaust about optimism with a question for Erica about, you know, what did she learn about the value of betting in the midst of the pandemic? This is, you set me up with an impossibility. So I'm gonna have to, <laughs> I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to change, I'm gonna have to change course. And I will say like Erica, one of the, the greatest strengths of Barstool is the community you guys have created. And what about that community helped the business thrive that you knew you, knew you could tap into that also helped you sort of to innovate in those moments? And it speaks a little bit to, to what Scott is referencing about the internal components of being in a business together. You guys have that and it also radiates outward. Yeah, I mean, I agree with Scott entirely. Like, I think the mental health impact from this pandemic, I agree, will be generational. Um, I, I also, you know, we're kind of a funny company where we've been open. We were closed for one month and then we opened the office. For anyone who felt comfortable coming in, we did testing two days a week, we did masks. And it was depressing coming into New York. I mean, I would be the only one on the West Side Highway. Like there was no one coming into New York. And most of our 
staff lives within a two block radius of the office because most of them are transplant, transplants that have moved here to work for Barstool. So the idea of being in something together, being in the trenches together, I think is always something that's propelled Barstool. We've always been up against an enemy, whether it was someone bigger or someone in the media industry or the people we compete with or the headlines or the establishment or whatever that may be. And that kind of grit and attitude was very helpful for us during the pandemic because it was just another, it was just another obstacle. I mean, we, Dave and I were laughing yesterday, Dave Portnoy about the unboxing. Like, I don't know if people remember the unboxing, but I would go to Dave's apartment during the pandemic and you couldn't get in the front door because it was surrounded with boxes from people. And we went live every night unboxing stuff. That, it, it seems ridiculous in hindsight, but creating a live show out of unboxing packages from random Americans made our, our fans feel closer to us. It gave us something entertaining to talk about. It added to our viewership on YouTube and Twitch and whatnot. Um, and you look at, you know, we did that across the board. If you look at, you know, what Big Cat did with Coach Dubs, we would have 75,000 people watching a stream with us with a fictitious fat football coach. We then found a real guy who was like fairly fat from Florida who looked just like him. And then we hired him and now he's part of the mix. So like part of it's ridiculous and comedy and part of it is I think true ingenuity and, you know, I think what's exciting about sports betting in general is it's just, it's an incremental revenue stream. I love how Jason says it, which is it's the game within the game. It creates a whole new layer of something to talk about, something to watch. It's the perfect second screen experience. It's the perfect thing to gloat over or to take a bunch of heat for if you made a bet, if you made a bad bet. Um, and it makes the game transactional. And I think that at our very best, what we've done as a media company is to make things transactional. You know, you want to, when we were doing Cat Cave Derby, we did it every night at seven o'clock. Big Cat would blow the horn and he would do the horse races. People started to get behind individual horses. We sold hundreds of thousands of dollars of merch of t-shirts from Spiral Ham. Like I was a big Spiral Ham fan. So like, and Spiral Ham sucked, but you could buy a t-shirt. Then we did a partnership with Vineyard Vines where you could buy Spiral Ham t-shirts on Vineyard Vines. It, for us, the pandemic, I completely agree with Jason and Scott is that it opened up so many opportunities. Companies that would never have worked with us who would have turned their nose up or been like, ooh, it's Barstool. We're like, shit, we're desperate for audience. We're desperate for revenue. What do you guys seem to be doing something that works for both? How do we work together to do that? Um, and we put that muscle to work with Penn. We put that muscle to work in building the Barstool Sportsbook. Uh, we put that muscle to work in what we did in live streaming in particular. And then we put that muscle to work in commerce. And that's really, I think, the, the, the ingenuity or the invention that happened here during that time. So we're starting to get some questions from folks who are, are uh, streaming with us. And Scott, you mentioned the importance of data. And you know, when you and I were catching up yesterday, this came up uh, as an area of interest as well. And someone sent in a question about using data that you have available. You have it from customers. Erica and Jason, you have it from 
uh, your your site and your app and just sort of general content. But is there anywhere you guys are looking to scrape just to learn more about your customers and fans that doesn't exist within your ecosystem? And if it's not scrape, what are some areas where you think you can learn more to understand data better about your customers? Scott, I'll start with you. Yeah, I don't want to get too uh, techno nerdy on you um, at risk of that. But I, I think that the basic foundation of what we do in my business on the property side is going to come down to data and content. And if we get those two areas right, the world is our oyster. Um, we sit in a really interesting place. Um, we have the hearts and minds, and in many cases, the souls of the markets in which we do business. And so they're, they're dying to give us their information. Um, they're, they're paying money to buy a, a t-shirt with our name on it. You know, it's, it's a, we sit in a really fun spot um, and our kind of our commitment or our currency with them is delivering them um, the right content at the right time. Um, and so we've spent quite a bit of time thinking about what that is. You can't take the, your fans for granted, of course. And, um, and, and they're, they're, so our, we spend a lot of time thinking about when we have a whole dashboard um, that's minute by minute. It surprised you guys, I think, or some, you might think about like um, anybody that's doing content knows what hits and why on what platform and when. And so, so that is our currency to the fans in our database that we make sure we get them the best content we can get. Now, if I were just to turn that over and just say, bet, 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 that's not going to work. Um, but, but what, what, what I think, um, at least again, Jason's the partner, so I know what he does really well is like that's teams collaborating and figuring out in game, how we create the perfect prop bet, um, which will transform for us. If you're gamblers, people who bet on sports, are two to three times more likely to watch a game and go to a game than a regular fan. So for us, that's a really interesting audience for us. You know, that, that, that actually fuels and feeds our core business. Um, and I, I bet that's vice versa um, in terms of people who attend games, I would imagine are more likely to bet on sports. And so, so we have a symbiotic opportunity and it's just about how do we do it in a way where that fan is with us for 40 years and not 40 minutes. Chase, to, to you, similar question. You have so much access because you've been building a database for so long with DFS and now you guys are uh, you know, really the, the leaders in terms of market share in so many places. And so for sports betting, what are, are there areas you think you can find data that helps you learn more about people that you need to attract? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think as Scott said, there is a symbiotic relationship with those that are, you know, putting the content on the court or the ice of the field every day. And they have interesting insights into that top of the funnel. And, um, you know, we have many of their most passionate fans and it's absolutely correlated that the people coming to their arenas and you know, stadiums are more likely to be uh, betters or fantasy players than somebody who's not. I also think that, um, you know, one of the nice things, and, and Scott touched on this a little bit, uh, one of the really nice things about fantasy and betting that you don't get in every industry is there's this virtuous relationship you can establish with the content providers where everyone wins together. 
if people are watching more, they're playing fantasy and they're betting more. If they're betting more and playing fantasy more, they're watching more and they're watching the whole game. So I think that's just a, it, it's, it's a true win-win. Um, when things go well for both parties, it helps the other. And a lot of times um, in business, you have to do well um, at the expense of someone else. And I think that between that relationship, as well as if you look at Erica, my companies, like, yes, we're competing, but we're also part of this amazing growth period that's happening right now, where I guarantee you both of us, if we continue to see good legislation rolled out in states and good markets develop, both of our companies are going to grow a lot. Um, and, you know, it's kind of a nice place to be right now where, yes, of course, everyone's competing and of course, everyone feels like they want to do the best, but also there's a, a coming together between the content owners like Scott uh, and the industry operators like Erica and us um, that are, you know, really all trying to build something or trying to build an industry and you too, Chad, um, coming at it from the content side, we're all trying to build an industry together do it in a way that's, you know, going to create long-term healthy dynamics and going to create a lot of great experiences for fans. So last question, because we've got, and I want each of you to answer this. Erica, I'm going to start with you. Uh, and this is from one of our, our uh, watchers today. What can you, Scott mentioned the Roy 20, the Roaring Twenties period, and, and I think we can all agree that we're, we're headed for uh, continued upswing. What can you do in order to sustain platform growth after that initial burst of, of opportunity and happiness when we're all back in a semi-normal world to sustain that growth? Yeah, I mean, we are pretty fast growing right now. You know, a good example is 45% of our new audience is from TikTok which is a platform that is young, it's dynamic, it's entirely social, very creative, solely video, right? So, you know, one of the interesting things about Barstool Sports is that it's not really one size fits all. You know, we have about 80 different personalities. We're making lots of different content. We're building a lot of different IP. We cannot wait to culturally usher in the Roaring Twenties. Like I can't think of a better brand to start championing the idea that people can be out, they can be social, things can be funny again, people can gather, you know, this is a ripe summer for some type of Saturdays or for the boys. It won't be Saturdays or for the boys, but it will be Saturdays for something or uh, something of that ilk. Um, in terms of how we're going to take advantage of it, look, I think there's some things that will never go back to the way they were following the pandemic. People will not work in offices the way they did before. People will think radically differently about commuting. I think the way people feel about living in cities will change. So there's a lot in our business that I think will change long-term. I think podcasting will change immensely. Um, as just a medium example. Uh, but the things that we're doing are, you know, we'll continue to invest in finding the funniest, best people to cover the things that we care about. We'll continue to invest in, op in opinion and humor, which I think is something that will only be more rewarded in the future. Uh, we'll start to build, you know, we've had a rental strategy, I would say, for the last three years, whereby, you know, we bring on brands, they advertise, we perform well for them, and then we get another rent check, we will move to, to building and buying our own stuff, we, you'll see Barstool become a physical brand, 
You'll see us become a nightlife brand. You'll see us become a CPG brand. You'll see us build other alcohol products. So um, we will continue to grow the content business, obviously, and then we will continue to evolve the format business. And then we will seek to find a way to earn more of people's time spent and more of their wallet uh, in places that are more physical. Like that's what we'll be doing. Scott and Jason, you each get one minute to talk. Yeah, I won't even take one. I'll go next. It might be quick. You know, we've grown, I've been here eight years. Uh, we've grown the value of the company five times in eight years. I know for Jason and Erica, that's probably a snail's pace, but, uh, but in the real world, that's a good clip. And uh, we're looking to keep that trajectory going. And our core business is really solid. I mean, we're already on pace. We'll exceed 1920 and 21-22. We have a tremendous fan bases. Our core business is really solid. So for us, it's about how do we take care of our ventures business? Where is there opportunity in our innovation lab and early, early stage companies? How about real estate? There's so much we, we think going to be a lot of incentives coming from the state governments to um, help us find good returns on exciting projects. I'm saying that as politically as possible. Um, and I'm ready to go. I, I, um, I, I typically am like six months ahead of wherever the world is. I'm going, I'm there. Like I'm, I'm already there. I'm raring to go and can't wait to get going. Jason, how about you? Uh, sorry, what would you repeat the question? Uh, thinking about sustained growth beyond that initial burst when everyone comes back. I mean, I think what we've been preaching is to think long term. Um, you can't really, no one can really predict, even if we all have optimism that there's going to be a burst, how it's going to come, when it's going to come, and where, how long it's going to last. And But Jason, don't you have New York, California, and Texas ready to open up? I mean, there is a burst coming, isn't there? But, you know, maybe not. I don't know. We have to see. New York did just pass something, but California and Texas aren't there yet. So, yes, there is still a lot on the horizon. And um, I think for us, it's really just about thinking long term. One of the nice, fortunate things about our situation is that we are going to put up great growth numbers simply by, you know, doing the same exact things we're doing today and seeing increased population, uh, you know, availability of, of sports betting. Um, so, you know, we really, that really gives us the luxury. We don't have to chase short-term revenue growth. We don't have to chase anything to make our numbers, uh, look great from a growth perspective. We just have to, you know, do the same things we've been doing, which opens up all the rest of our effort to think about how do we have a long-term sustainable business with great competitive advantages. So that's how we're thinking about it. All right. Well, listen, this has been a great panel, really thoughtful, uh, wide ranging, Scott O'Neill, Erica Nardini, Jason Robbins. Thank you very Dad, much. Dad, you're awesome too. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Great job. Everybody. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.